Hey, my food biz whizzes. Welcome to season eight of the podcast. Gosh, how, how did we get here? Well, here we are at episode 87, which means that I've put in a good 180 hours at a minimum. Gosh, that's if it's, we did two hours an episode on this podcast. Gosh, that's more than 22 full work days or over a month of dedicated time on this podcast if it were my full-time job, which you guys know it's not. That's nuts. Okay, so here we are in true food biz whiz tradition. I'm kicking off this season with another rapid fire episode, answering questions that you have asked me over Instagram, inside our food biz whiz Facebook group, and directly in my inbox. In today's show, we're going to talk through servicing your accounts, which sales channels to bet on in 2021, where you can source clip strips and shelf talker holders and things like that, what I have learned since launching the podcast, finding your ideal target audience, and how to get a buyer to merchandise you in a different section of the store. So let's get right to it. You're listening to Food Biz Whiz, the weekly podcast for everyone in the packaged food industry. Join your host, Ali Ball, to learn how to launch, grow, and scale your business. You'll hear real-life examples from her time as a professional grocery buyer, interviews with CPG experts, and listen in on actual client coaching sessions. Let's get going. This episode is brought to you by Retail Ready, my online course for producers of packaged product who are looking to grow their wholesale accounts. Retail Ready is opening for enrollment very soon. Through videos, workbooks, checklists, templates, live coaching calls with me, and daily access to me and my team in our private online group, Retail Ready has all the tools that you need to increase your sales through wholesale accounts, whether that's in traditional brick and mortar outlets or through e-commerce platforms. The first step to find out more about Retail Ready is to join my free masterclass on the three steps to growing your packaged food business, which I'll link to here in today's show notes. That hour-long webinar is jam-packed with advice that you can use to kickstart your growth right now, plus information on Retail Ready, on my past clients, and how we can work together. Sign up via the link in my show notes, and I will see you there. All right, we're back. Now, before I jump into the episode, I'm going to use the celebration of season eight of the podcast to ask a request of my listeners. We grow through the power of our community. That's that's you guys, right? So I'm going to ask, will you please snap a selfie or take a screenshot as you listen to this episode? Tag me on Instagram at it's Allie Ball and share it with your fellow foodpreneurs. I would love to give you a shout out right back and thank you for listening along. So thank you. Thank you for helping me spread the word about the Food Biz Whiz podcast as we kick off season eight. We are averaging, I'll tell you this, we're averaging about 7,000 downloads a month here on the podcast. I am stoked about this. But I'd also love to kick that up to 10,000 episodes a month as we hit our two-year anniversary this summer. That is my big goal, 10,000 downloads a month. So can you help me hit that goal by sharing this podcast? Thank you so much, my listeners. All right, let's get into our rapid fire. I love these episodes, and I've heard that you guys really do too. So it's a pleasure to do it. 
This first question from a listener has a few parts, so I'm going to take them one at a time. So first up, I'm I'm asked, once you've sold into a store, what is the best way to service that account? And I really love this question because it makes it makes me realize that it makes me realize that this listener understands that getting on the shelf is one thing and then having high sales once you do is a whole other thing, right? And so I I love that this listener has that awareness and what I would say to all of my listeners is that when you get a new account, whether that's a store or a restaurant or a cafeteria or a gift box, you know, website, whatever it is, whoever, whoever you are in relationship with, it's just that it is a relationship. It is a partnership. And once you get that first order, that's when the partnership starts. That's really when you kick it off. And that is when, um, it's important to get into action. (laughs) So the important thing here is to remember that every account, every store likes something different. And so in this question, how, what's the best way to service the account? You guys know, I hate this answer, but it really depends. Every store likes something different. And the number one way that you can figure out what the best way is to service that particular account, it's by asking them. Ask them how they want to be treated. You can can think about what ideally would work best for you and ask them if it works for them. So that might look like, you know, when you are onboarding with a new account, you say, can I email you once a week to check in on inventory? Or should I swing by once a week and check the shelves? You can say quite literally, hey, XYZ buyer, how do you want to be communicated with? You know, I think there's... That shows that you understand it's a partnership and it shows that you are looking to do what's best for them. Of course, if, you know, they came back and they said, we want you to stop in every single day (laughs) or uh, we want you to never call or email us again, like we got it from here. And, you know, if that doesn't fit with what you are looking for out of the partnership, don't say yes to that. But if you can, if you can find a rhythm that works for you, you both, that is the ideal partnership. And quite simply, it starts by asking them. So ask them, how how do they want you to service the account? From there, I, I circle back to the retail ready checklist that we have inside of our group program. So it's called the reorder checklist. I love this PDF. It is, it is um, a PDF that really talks through, that literally talks through the steps that you take once you land on, on the shelf. So it really, it helps you think through what you can do you know, knowing that it's a partnership, what you can do to drive sales. So think about for think about that for your brand and it's going to be different for all of you. Maybe it is thinking about your marketing, how you're going to support your product. Think about your promotions. How often can you run a promotion? What is the amount that you are willing to give? Is that promotion going to be passed on to the consumer or does it stay at the store level where where they're padding their margin a little bit? What can you do for staff education? How are you going to get those people on the ground in the store to respect you and quite literally stock your product on the shelves? Um, are you going to provide any sort of merchandising help? You know, once we roll further out of COVID, are you going to do demos, right? It can, it can vary based on brand and account, but you want to think about that. Um, and perhaps even create your own reorder checklist, just like we do inside of Retail Ready, making sure that you are repeating that process for each store that you get into. And so I, I caution you to 
to walk the line between (laughs) being helpful and being annoying as you service these new accounts. So I'll give you an example from when I was a buyer. I used to have, um, I used to have a lot of accounts who would email me every single week and ask if I needed a reorder. And, you know, I have to say it, it was a little bit of annoying. It was a little bit of an annoyance because I am a very organized person. I, I had systems in place for placing reorders and checking on inventory. And when I got those emails, it almost felt like, um, like the vendor wasn't trusting me to do my job. And I was like, Hey, if I want to reorder, I'm going to reach out to you. And so what I did is I started in response to those emails, I would just write back and I would set the expectation at the beginning that says, you know, it would either say, you know, when I need an email or excuse me, when I need a reorder, I will email you. Or I would say, Hey, I appreciate you emailing weekly, but if you don't hear back from me, you can assume that it's because I don't need a reorder. I'm not going to write back to you every single week. <laughs> and it just set the expectations on on both of our sides that uh, that's how I wanted to be in relationship with that vendor. So again, you know, walk that line between being helpful and being <laughs> being annoying, uh, knowing that you often get the reorder when you when you are engaged with those accounts on some sort of regular basis. Okay, so I hope that helps um, in when, once you sell into a store, what is the best way to service that account? That's a great question and there's so much nuance to it. So again, it depends. <laughs> All right, next question. What is the right timing to reach out to buyers? What is the right timing to reach out to new accounts? And again, gosh, I, I hate it when I say this, but it depends. So there, it's important to realize that there are best practices in our industry, but each account, each buyer at each account um, wants to do things a little bit differently. And that's what could be so frustrating, right? So seasonally, I'll just talk about some best practices here. Seasonally, buyers are busiest around the holidays and they are less likely to bring in new products between October and January. And that's just, you know, that is best practices. Buyers are busiest when sales are busiest. That is the fourth quarter in retail. So there are exceptions. Absolutely. We had retail ready students who were landing new accounts, you know, October, November, December last year, simply because they they were still pursuing new accounts during that time. So again, it's not a hard and fast rule here. There are exceptions, but you've got to think about the seasonality of your product when the buyer is busiest and the timing of retail. So when I was a buyer, again, I would make holiday decisions, fourth quarter decisions in July and August. And I know that sounds nuts, but here's why we did it. We had a really, really beautiful holiday catalog that would come out each year. And it was, you know, a, a physical print catalog. And we would select our holiday products over the summer. And it was a huge coordinated effort, right, between the, all of the buyers and, you know, gosh, we probably had you know, 15, 15 buyers at, at, uh, the store level. And then we had our marketing department, our catering department, you know, all of these different people who had to come together to contribute to this catalog. So we would plan it over the summer and then we would send it to print around Labor Day. And so that meant that let's say, <laughs> let's say you have a candy cane company or you're a panettone company and you are pitching me your product in, 
even gosh, mid-September, late September, October, you it was too late to put you in the holiday catalog because we had sent that to print around Labor Day. And so, you know, I it doesn't mean that I wouldn't have said yes, that I didn't, you know, stock that really you know, progressive candy cane company on our shelves in November and December. But it just meant that the marketing efforts were really limited for that product because they simply didn't meet our deadlines. And so I think about that, um, especially as you guys are thinking about bigger and bigger accounts and knowing that there is a reason why buyers are thinking so far and ahead. It is so much more complicated than just saying yes, getting a delivery of a couple cases and stocking it on the shelves. There's there's so much coordinated effort that it takes to put your product on the shelf. And often it's way beyond just the buyer making a decision at the shelf level. So you want to really think about the that time of year. So again, <laughs> the answer to this question of what is the right time to reach out is that it depends. It depends on your product. It depends on the account. Um, there, there are some best practices. Again, like I think you have to be really careful pitching in the fourth quarter and knowing what you're doing. And by all means, the earlier in the year, the better. Okay. Whew, let's do one more before we take, no, I'm going to do two more before I take a quick break. So f- next up is how do you gently suggest that there is a better place for your product in the store? This is a great question. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners can relate to this. So you go back and forth, you finally get placed on the shelf and maybe you're merchandised at the very bottom, right? Or up high that's really hard to reach at the top of that metro shelf, or you're in some like dusty, dark corner of the store that doesn't get much foot traffic. So if that's happened to you, you're not alone, right? Like tons of products are on the bottom shelf or the top shelf or in those dusty corners, but you might be wondering, how do you make, how do you convince the buyer? How do you make that buyer re-merchandise you so you have better shelf placement? And so there are a couple things to, to think about here. And the first one is that we all want that eye level, eye level shelf placement, right? If every single person on the shelf, every brand on the shelf knows that that premium real estate is at eye level, it is, it's really coveted and it means that not everybody can be at eye level, right? That's just literally like the, how the, how the shelves work. Not everybody can be at eye level. So the buyer typically puts the fastest moving product at eye level. There are definitely, again, there are exceptions to that. If there is something that is, is extremely fast moving, there's some strategy to putting it down low, right? Cause we want to take a slower mover and put it at, at eye level and give it a chance, right? Like maybe I would, merchandise the um, sea salt potato chips on the bottom shelf because I know they're going to sell no matter what, no matter where they are on the shelf. But there is, but just know that everybody wants that eye level shelf. So it's it's a big ask if you're telling the buyer to re-merchandise you or politely asking the buyer to re-merchandise you. So there's a couple ways to do it. First off, I always think about setting expectations from the very beginning. So you want to tell that buyer in your pitch, literally in your email pitch or on your phone pitch, where you sell best, right? You also want to put it on your sell sheet. You're setting the expectations from the very beginning. So you might, this might look like saying, um, we are a fruit pate company that sells best off the cheese dry table or 
We are a cheese pate company that, yeah, that sells best off the cheese dry table. We suggest that you merchandise us next to your Membrio and your Marcona almonds. Great. You have just given that buyer one last thing to think about, right? So when, again, when that buyer puts you on the shelf, they are thinking about so many things. There's so many moving parts as to, you know, that so many moving parts and so many steps that they have to take when they bring in your product line. So if you tell them where to merchandise you, it's one less thing that they have to think about. Sure, of course, they might override your suggestion. They know their store better than you do, but giving them gentle suggestions at the beginning is a great way to start. Put it on your sell sheet. Put it on your email pitch. Next up, so let's say let's say they do place you somewhere and you don't like it. You have slow sales and you think it's a result of the location. So you are going to reach out to the buyer, acknowledging whether that's you know literally in in the words that you say to them, or just inside your own brain, that the buyer knows best. They know their store. And it can be, I'll just say this from the buyer's perspective, it can be a little frustrating when a brand comes in and thinks that they know better than you do as a buyer who is very intimate with your store, what is best for for their store, right? Because again, Everybody wants to have premium placement in the store, and the buyer needs to make some tough decisions about where to put what products. Okay, so anyways, I want you to use data to convince the buyer to put you in a better location. So I want you to think through how how are your sales when you are merchandised somewhere else, and how can you share that information with the buyer? So again, that might be as simple as telling them, right? Like, hey, XYZ buyer, we've noticed in the past two weeks, we've only sold four units of our product. We've noticed, however, in stores just like yours, independent stores in... you know, in the Chicago area that when we are merchandised on the cheese dry table, we sell on average 14 units a week. You know, that is triple what you're doing in your store. Can I kindly suggest that we try a month on the cheese dry table and assess sales? There you go. I love, I love it when, when brands make suggestions that are based off data rather than just you know, I don't want to be on the bottom shelf. I don't like my placement. You know, give me better shelf space. You know, when you actually use data to suggest that you guys are in it together, that you're both seeking higher sales, that's a much, much stronger pitch than just complaining about your placement. Okay. And lastly, you, you've got to have a relationship with this buyer before you go in and demand that they make changes. Again, like demanding is never the way to do it. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to ask. And it comes back to showing that you both have the same goal, which is higher sales. And you can use data. You can prove to them that it would be worthwhile to you both if you were remerchandised. Okay. I hope that, I hope that helps. That was a great question. Okay, I've got I've got one more before we take a quick break. So I got this one. This was a, a DM and it was a really good one. Allie, I love your tough love. What's a mistake that you wish foodpreneurs would stop making? 
Yeah, this is a good one. There are so many mistakes. <laughs> and I don't say that to make you feel bad or to downplay the success that you have had. I mean, I personally have made a ton of mistakes in my business. And that's how we all learn, right? So I'll talk about a mistake that I was just ranting about on Instagram recently. And in fact, I will link that Instagram post here in the show notes if you want to see it in its entirety and some of the comments that I got on there. So here's what it said. It said, stop obsessing over the outcome and start obsessing over the process. So the, one of the mistakes that I see is that foodpreneurs worry and obsess and complain and, you know, freak out over all the things that you literally have zero control over and you get really worked up and emotionally, mentally upset over things that you literally have no control over. And this often causes stress, it causes overwhelm, it causes resentment. Resentment. I see a lot of this in our industry. And all of that is unnecessary. So typically, when I see founders spiraling in overwhelm and in frustration and resentment, it's because they are focused on the things that they can't control rather than the things that they can control. So I want to make sure that that you really think about that and, and make sure that in your business, you are obsessing over all of the things that you can control, that you dial in all the things that you can control. So let me just, I'll, I'll run through some of the things I talked about in the Instagram post. So here's what you can't control. You can't control whether or not a buyer actually opens your email. You can't control if they decide to write back. You can't control if they take the time to taste your samples. You cannot control whether or not they put you in the planogram. You cannot control whether or not they show up to that virtual trade show that you have invested in. They, you can't control whether or not they re-merchandise you or whether or not they place a reorder. Like there is you, in short, like you can't control that buyer's behavior, period, right? And I know you think that you can. I know you think if I just try harder, if I just do something differently, like if I just swing by, I can control them, but you can't, right? We can never control another person. So here's what you can control. This is getting a little deep. <laughs> it's not where I thought it was going to go. So this is what you can control. You can control your sales pitch and tweaking it until you have a pitch that people respond to. You can control your sales pipeline and your follow-up sequence. You can make sure that you have a process in place that you follow with every single lead. You can control whether or not you give up when things get a little tough. You can control what your promotional plan is and how how and when you're going to offer promos throughout the year. You can control your preparedness for a virtual trade show. I have seen hundreds of virtual pitches over the past year, and I am shocked by the mediocre quality of many of those pitches, right? And that is 100% in your control. You can control how you use the amazing press that you get and whether you are putting it in the correct place in your pitch sequence. We've talked about this a lot inside of Retail Ready. What do you do with that great press that you get? You can control your organizational skills and your persistence as a food founder. You can control what you invest in and what you don't invest in. So gosh, 
there's a lot that you can control. And there is a lot that you can't control. And again, that that mistake that I want to see foodpreneurs stop making is getting obsessed and getting hung up on the things that you can't control. Because that's what's going to lead you to burnout. It's going to lead you to, again, resentment. And it's going to lead you, you know, potentially to give up. And I don't want, I don't want that for you. I don't think you want that for yourself. So huh, that was a deep one. <laughs> you guys can probably tell I'm going off script a little bit today. So um I I typed out these questions, I compiled these questions, and I'm I'm not scripting my answers here. I'm just winging it. And it um apparently I'm in a feisty mood today <laughs> as we kick off season eight of the podcast. All right, I'm gonna take a quick break. Hang tight, and we'll be back in a moment. If you've been enjoying these episodes, imagine what it would be like to ask clarifying questions directly to me and have my assistants working through your strategy on these topics. Well, you can. My Retail Ready students have access to me live in our private online group and on our monthly coaching calls, and I'd love to see you in there as well. Retail Ready enrollment opens again really soon and kicks off with my free masterclass on the three steps to growing your packaged food business. I have that linked here in the show notes, and I can't wait for you to join to learn more about me and how I work with clients, to find out whether Retail Ready is the right fit for you and to learn my three steps to growing your packaged food biz. Come join me via the link in the show notes and I'll see you there. All right, we are back and we're going to talk about clip strips, shelf talker holders, direct to consumer sales and sales channels, what I've learned since launching Food Biz Wiz. And I've got a few more questions before we wrap up. So I'm going to, let's dive right in with with that one. What have I learned that surprised me since launching Food Biz Wiz? So I'm going to assume that this question is about Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. I don't know if you guys know this, but we officially changed our business name from Allison Ball Consulting. So I, I launched my business seven years ago as Allison Ball Consulting, and I switched it last year in 2020 to Food Biz Wiz Incorporated. So I'm going to assume that this question specifically means the the podcast. So that's how I'll answer it. So this is another great question. I have learned a lot since I launched the podcast. Again, we are in episode 87 and it comes out every single week. So 87 weeks of doing this podcast. So let me just share what comes to mind first. So when I first launched the podcast, I was really nervous that I would run out of things to talk about. <laughs> and that that clearly hasn't happened. So I was nervous that if I launched a podcast, I would yeah, I would run out of things to say and I was nervous that if I gave away so much free content, people wouldn't join us inside of Retail Ready, right? You know that saying, right? Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? So I was really anxious about that, that that you guys would think that you got all of this good stuff from the podcast. So why would you ever join us in our paying program? And luckily, I mean, gosh, luckily I proved myself wrong. I actually love it when I prove, when I prove my brain wrong. So I think with the podcast, people feel even more confident joining us inside of Retail Ready. So one recent student, uh, Dinah of Keystone Cravings, she said, and I'm actually, I'm going to quote this because I've got, uh, I've got up my Instagram feed after I answered that previous question. So here's what she said. I'm, I'm literally going to read it. She says, Allie is not kidding when she says, just wait 
until you see what's inside of Retail Ready. I am absolutely 100% sure that I have made the right decision to join. The producers in there are ready to change the world one bite at a time. So Dinah, I don't know if you're listening, and I don't know if I've acknowledged how big of a compliment of uh, that is for me. So thank you so much. I know that you were, I know that you were following me on my, on my mailing list. You were in our food business community for a long time. You took brand camp a couple times. Gosh, maybe you were around in, in my community for years before joining Retail Ready. So it's huge that you have had that experience and that you, you get what I, what I mean when I say just wait into, until you join Retail Ready. Wait until you see what's inside of Retail Ready. If, if you think the free stuff is good, like inside of Retail Ready is, is even better. And so actually, this makes me think of one thing that's related that came up with a friend of mine, Vanessa Lau. She, um, she's an Instagram strategist. So this came up a, a couple of weeks ago. So she mentioned getting to the point where it feels like all of the the content on social media, mailing lists or, you know, podcasts that you subscribe to are no longer helpful for business, for your business, right? Like you've heard it all before and that you're no longer learning as you're consuming. So I'm actually curious if you guys have felt this. I mean, I know I have. There are podcasts that I typically business podcasts that I just stopped getting value out of. I, I unsubscribed and, you know, it's because I leveled up in my business. The content was no longer helpful to me because I was at a higher level. And so again, I'm not saying that to boast, but to remind you when the free content no longer teaches you, it doesn't mean that the content sucks. It's not the content. It's you in a good way. It's you. It means that you need more advanced content as you're more advanced in your business. And that is a great thing. People who build their businesses based off free content, which we all do in the beginning, right? And it's simply that they're in the beginning stages. They're in the early stages. And at some point that content will no longer serve you. And it might be time to invest in the next stage. That's what Dinah did. So I'm, I'm excited. Dinah, I'm excited for you. Okay. Anyways, back, I got off on a tangent there. Back to what I learned from the podcast. One more lesson that I learned that actually is directly related to you guys is that just because I might be bored with talking about a topic, it doesn't mean that my audience is bored by a topic. So I want you to think about this as and think about it with your audience. So I don't mean to imply that I'm bored of doing these podcast episodes. Not, that's not it. But I just used this example the other day, and I'll use it again here. If I never had to tell someone to source their UPCs from GS1 again, I would be fine. I'm going to admit it. I am bored of talking about barcodes. And that's just because I've talked about barcodes, you know, for the past 15 years. And it's probably, I've probably talked about barcodes more than 99% of people in this world. But again, just because I am bored of talking about barcodes doesn't mean that my audience is. There are people listening to this podcast who need to know that GS1 is the only reputable place to source your barcodes and that there are countless reasons why you should not buy those cheapo reused UPCs out there. So how does that relate to you and your food business? Well, I think so often we get stuck trying to create new content for our newsletters and our blogs and social media. We feel like we've run out of things to say, right? I did for a long time. And that's what I was nervous about with this podcast. But here's the deal. 
you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Just because you are bored doesn't mean that your audience is bored. So sit down, write out half a dozen themes that resonate with your audience and talk about them over and over again. You will never run out of things to say. Okay, so that was one big thing that I learned. Just because we've talked about retail or e-commerce or marketing strategies or sales emails so many times, it doesn't mean that my audience is bored from it, bored by it, and I need to respect that. Okay, and I'm going to, again, say that big disclaimer. I am not bored of doing this podcast. I love interviewing people. I love doing these solo episodes, but it is really interesting to think about um our own perspective with our content and our audience's perspective with our content. Okay, lastly, I'll I'll wrap it up here. So, I learned that the with the podcast that I love batching content and that if something is on my calendar, it gets done. So, batching, you know, the idea of doing something in batches is a huge time saver, and I wish more people did that as they created content for their brands. So, I actually I I said this a while back and I just haven't gotten around to it, but I would really like to do an episode on batching content. So, if you guys are interested, if you want me to make that a priority, let me know. Send me a DM if you want to vote <laughs> vote that up in the queue. All right, next question. Gosh, this is such an easy one for me. So where are you buying? Where should I source shelf talker holders, merchandisers, clip strips, and things like that? So I like Hubert.com. H-U-B-E-R-T.com. I'm going to put it in, um, I'll put it in the show notes, but that is my favorite place to buy any sort of merchandising, things like that. I will tell you, I always say it with this disclaimer that they have probably tens of thousands of products in their catalog. I find their catalog to be extremely overwhelming, but I also find their customer support to be incredible. So I usually just chat them. I chat customer support online and I I describe what I'm looking for. And of course, like they give me a whole bunch of options. So Hubert.com is my source for all that, that stuff. Okay. I've got two questions left and then we will get out of here. So let's see. Um, one of the things I really struggle with is finding out who our audience or customer base is. We have a broad idea, but we need to drill down on that. Do you have any tips or suggestions? Okay. Another great question. These are good questions. So we go into this in so much deal detail inside of Retail Ready. We have a whole module on target audience audiences. We have target audience Mad Libs, which are really really fun. We have um, we help you figure out how to create a survey for them and then what to do with that data. So if you are struggling on target audience, come and join us in Retail Ready. I, that is some of the most valuable stuff that we do in there, and I would love to support you on it. But for now, let me give you let me give you some high level advice. And it starts by reaching out to the people who have already paid for your product. So if I told you that I was going to give you $500 if you could get 10 people to fill out your customer survey in the next 30 minutes, I want you to think about this. Who would you turn to first with the disclaimer that they can't be your friends and your family? So who are those people who have already shown interest time and time again. Who are those people who have pulled out their wallets and paid for your product? Those are the people who you want to ask, right? So they may have been people who have purchased from your website multiple times, and now you have their email address. Or maybe it's someone who comes to your farmer's market booth every single week, rain or shine. Those are the people that you want to talk to. Okay, so we all 
we what we really want to know is the emotional reason why they're connected to your brand. What are they really buying when they purchase your product? So is it relief in the form of your CBD beverage? Or is it confidence in the kitchen with your simmer sauces? Or is it a sense of charitable good with your snack mixes that donates profits to marginalized communities. So what is that emotion? That's what we're really trying to get to here. So I'm going to guide you, I'll guide you to a past episode uh, here on the Food Biz Whiz podcast as well. We've done a lot on target consumers on, on this podcast. So I want you to check out episode number 38 with my friend Christy Lee of Nourishing Food Marketing. Christy is one of my favorite food marketers out there, and it is a great episode. You can find it at alleyball.com slash podcast slash 38 or directly in our show notes. Okay, last question here. This is this is a big one. <laughs> After the rise of direct-to-consumer in 2020, what sales channels will be most effective for brands in 2021? Okay, again, I hate this answer. I hate that I've said it so many times, but it depends. It totally depends on your product and your category and where your consumers are looking for your specific type of product. So let's, again, let's use some examples here. So Uh, Let me think of a good one. Let's use the example of truffle salt. So do you know how many jars of truffle salt we sold off the shelf every month at Byrite? It was probably one to two jars a month. But I want you to ask yourself how many jars of truffle salt a fine dining restaurant might be going through post-pandemic. It's a lot more than one to two jars a month, right? So think about that. What is my product and where are people using it the most? Where are, you know, is that food service? Is that retail? Is that direct to consumer? Are you a frozen brand? Are you refrigerated brand? Retail is likely still your best bet. It's really hard to ship ice cream across the country to your direct to consumer fan base, right? If you're health or wellness related, if you solve a particular, you know, physical problem, if, if it's something that people Google, right? Maybe direct to consumer is best for you. We saw that a lot with things around immunity over the past year. People were Googling, you know, um, herbal supplements for immunity or like natural products for immunity boost. And sure enough, direct to consumer rose in those categories. We actually saw, so we saw a 79% rise in e-commerce last year. And that was like the big number that was going around 79% rise in e-commerce. But I always remind people, I put a little asterisk on there and remind people that that includes Instacart and, you know, store, direct store, click and collect online ordering um, with wholesale platforms like the Thrive Markets of the world and the Good Eggs of the world. Um, so that that's not direct to consumer that rose 79%. That's e-commerce as a whole. And a lot of that still included retail purchases, which were just then delivered uh, outside of that store experience. So click and collect curbside pickup um, or home delivery. So I, I just want, I always like to say that because I think so often we think you know, we, we hear that stat or stats that are similar to that 79% rise in e-commerce last year and think like, holy cow, like direct to consumer skyrocketed. And it's important to remember that that's, that's not all direct to consumer sales that, that make up that 79%. 
So it's important, you know, it's important to remember that an omni-channel strategy is more crucial than ever. I want you to check out last week's podcast, actually, in the show notes here. And we talked about, I think, gosh, what was the official title? Four four things that we learned in COVID that will apply in 2021. Four things that you've got to make sure that you've got in place as we move out of a pandemic. And on that note, I'll also advise you to tune into next week's podcast. Next week, I'm discussing food service and on-premise channels and why it's important to make moves right now, if that's going to be part of your strategy for Q2. Okay, whew, that was a good question. Uh, clearly, I had some some thoughts <laughs> about that one. Uh, and I hope I hope that that helped you there. Okay, so that's it, my whizzes. As always, I hope that you've enjoyed this rapid fire. I love this style of episode. I, I think you can probably tell. And again, welcome to season eight. We have some really wonderful shows lined up for you over the next few months, for the next few weeks even. So next week, I'm talking about food service and the future of that channel for CPG brands. Later in the month, I've got Brie with Ember Consulting, and we're going to talk about marketing to your community using the, the power of your community and marketing. I'm welcoming Noah Alper of Noah's Bagels. He's going to recap his journey of launching a business, launching multiple businesses, and selling Noah's bagels for $100 million, which is just nuts. I'm going to bring in my friend Phil Sandusky, and we're going to talk about R&D for food brands. I've got Valerie um, Madamba on deck for an episode on regulat- regulatory foundations. You guys are going to meet Charlie Birkinshaw, um, who many, many of my Retail Ready students know. He's going to come and talk about what he does here with us at Food Biz Wiz and a whole lot more. It's going to be good. We've got really, really great episodes on deck. Okay, so last call for you guys. Please share this episode and tag me when you do. I'd be so grateful for you to help me hit that big, big goal of 10,000 downloads a month as we cruise into our eighth season of the Food Biz Wiz podcast. So I appreciate you so much and thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Food Biz Wiz, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you never miss a beat. Hungry for more? Check out www.foodbizwiz.com. That's food, B-I-Z-W-I-Z.com for detailed show notes from all episodes. Thanks again for tuning in and stay busy.